At this point, most of you have heard uh, about the arrival of Judson James Hogue. Uh, Trevor and Maria's baby boy uh, was born this week, and from all I hear, seems to be doing quite well, both Maria and Judson, and so we're thrilled for them. Uh, they've been here about six months now and just been a delight. Uh, I know that uh, many of you have enjoyed getting to know them, and uh, I've certainly loved having Trevor on staff, and he's been a blessing to the church body and to everyone that he's ministered to uh, so far. And reports are that Judson is already enjoying board games and playing board games. So um, he's a fanatic at this early stage. So we're thankful uh, for his birth and, uh, and for them uh, and all of that. So let me pray for us this morning as we get into God's word together. Father, we need your help this morning. Um, it's hard to adequately express the truths that are here regarding Jesus and the offer of living water, but I pray that you would take my feeble words and you would use them by your Holy Spirit, that you would use your word, the Bible, you would pierce our hearts, and that you would Give us a, a thirst and a hunger and a desire beyond what we have experienced before for Jesus and for his work and for your presence. So be with us now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God has designed your body and mine, the human body, to regularly require the intake of water to continue to function. Ironically, it's thought that most people, my guess would be the majority of you in this room, function day to day in a chronic state of slight dehydration. I'll often, not often, but occasionally I will feel nauseous on a road trip when I haven't drunk a lot of water and I'll begin to think I'm getting sick and my wife will say, have you had any water today? Well, no, I've had two cups of coffee and it's because you're dehydrated, that's why. But it's thought that most of us function in a chronic state of dehydration. And then what that means is that your water intake does not equal the amount of water that you are losing throughout the day. It's not good for us to be in that sort of state. Our bodies can handle it though. Just a slight bit of dehydration, your body can handle it. If you're, if you're losing or if you're about three to 4% under what you need to adequately replace it, you can get by without noticing too much. But if that starts to increase to a greater level, let's say five to 8%, then you start to notice it uh, in more significant ways. You may experience dizziness. It's possible that because of that level of dehydration that you may faint. But if you continue to go, and it, it, the replacement levels are even less, if you continue to go, where your body is losing 15 to 20%, then changes start to happen in significant ways in your body. Your blood starts to thicken. It gets harder for blood to move around your body. Your heart can't pump as well. And so in response, your body starts to select where the blood is going to get moved to. And certain organs do not get an adequate blood supply and they can start to shut down and can cause damage, and ultimately, if that continues for an extended period of time, death can occur. Now, the bottom line for all of this is that we consistently need to take in water to survive. 
And one of the first signs that your body is not reaching replacement level, that you're losing more water than you're taking, or that you're losing more than you're taking in, is that you get thirsty. Thirst is your body saying, hey, it would be good to get some water in here so I can keep things functioning properly. Now, there's a reason that Jesus consistently uses the metaphor of thirst to help us to understand our need for God's presence. Remember the words that he spoke to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Listen to this, John 4, 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, physical water, H2O, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And her confused response is this in verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus returns again in John 7, in our text for this morning, John 7, 25 to 52. He returns to that metaphor of living water and of thirst again. But this time, he's using it not because he's by a well where people are coming to draw physical water to drink, but he's using it this time because he's going to connect his life and ministry to what happens at the Feast of Booths. It's a very clear connection to the events surrounding the the Feast of Booths, not the Beast of Foods. But that's what he's going to do this morning in this passage. And if you'll flip over to chapter 7 and look at verse 37 real quickly, this forms the highlight of this text, this passage that we're looking at. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is the high point of this section. Everything leads up to this and what comes after it and the rest of chapter 7 flows from this. And so as we get into this today, beginning in verse 25, here's what I want to show you. Three qualities of the living water offered by Jesus. Three qualities of the living water offered by Jesus. And the first one of these is it is drinkable. Not all water is drinkable at all. We take that for granted sometimes because we live in a place where we can just open up the tap and get clean water and drink it and not have to worry about it. When I have traveled before over to Nepal to teach, you cannot, as a Westerner, drink the tap water. It's one of the first things they tell you when you go there. Do not drink the tap water. You will get sick if you have any of it. One time I was in a village, and I'm pretty sure I got sick just from them using unclean water to clean a plate that I then ate off of. It's a significant threat for a Westerner. But Jesus here is offering suitable and drinkable water. What is it that makes his water so good and so suitable? What makes his water so appealing and so worthwhile? Something that you and I would actually want and something that we would actually need. 
Here's what makes it drinkable. It all has to do with the relationship that he has to God the Father. And it all has to do with the fact that he comes from God into the world and that he will depart from the world and return back to God. Coming and going. That's why he can offer living water. And he's going to address this with the crowds that are around him and are listening to him teach in this section here from 25 to 36. In 25 to 31, he's going to talk about his coming, his being sent of the Father into the world. And in 32 to 36, he's going to talk about his going. And you put those two together and it prepares the way for us to understand why his water is so good and why it's living water. So let's pick up the story in verses 25 and 26 here. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So he says, therefore, in verse 25, and so all of this is one continuous story. And here's what's happened leading up to this point. Jesus has traveled to Jerusalem privately. He was ministering in Galilee, in the north, around the Sea of Galilee. His brothers wanted him to go to Jerusalem and make a grand entrance at this important Jewish feast. And he says, no, I'm not going to do it the way you want me to do it. But he does go to the feast privately. The Feast of Booths was one of the three major Jewish festivals. Passover was the first, and this is the second, taking place about six or seven months after Passover. And at this point in his ministry, the people are very, very curious about Jesus. He's already performed multiple signs. He's fed the 5,000. He made the water into wine. He healed the lame man in Jerusalem. A lot of things have happened, and the people are very curious about him. Look back to chapter 7, verses 11 through 13. There are lots of different opinions about him as he arrives to Jerusalem. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And so Jesus arrives privately incognito to the feast and then amazingly enough in the very middle of the feast he goes into the temple and starts to teach and as he begins to teach the people marvel they're amazed and astonished at this unexpected display of authority that he has with the scriptures he knows them so well and they don't understand this because he's never studied under a Jewish rabbi and Jesus takes this observation that they make in this opportunity to point out how hypocritical it is of the authorities to get mad at him for healing a man on the Sabbath day. Because they perform circumcision on the Sabbath. They think this will make someone whole. It will help this person who's receiving the circumcision to be in obedience to the law and to be complete and to follow the commandments as they were given out. And Jesus says, how can you do that and break the law when I heal a man and make him whole, which fulfills the purpose of the Sabbath, and then you get upset with me. You don't really understand the purpose of the Old Testament law. Look at 23 and 24. 
If, this is what Jesus says to them, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now, amazingly, this seems to put this issue to rest. You don't read any more in this section about them arguing with Jesus about healing the lame man. But now they turn to another issue that they have. They're trying to figure out who he is, and they're trying to decide if they think he's the Messiah or not. And now they question whether or not he can be the Messiah based on his origin. Look at verses 26 again and verse 27. And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ or the Messiah appears, no one will know where he comes from. This was a very common belief at this time, that the Messiah would be unknown, an unknown figure, until he rose up onto the scene suddenly, and as he rises up and becomes popular, he immediately delivers his people, the Jewish people, from their Roman oppressors. Now, they think of Jesus as being from Nazareth, from Galilee, and so they're confident that he can't be the Messiah. They know where he's from. They've known him for a long time. They know his family. And so they don't think he can be the Messiah because of his origin. And so Jesus takes their interest in his origin, in where he's from, where he has come from, and he begins to talk about that in more detail. Look at 28 and 29. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Now, it could be that Jesus is saying this first line sarcastically here. You know me? You know where I come from? With a question mark, really? You, you think you do, but they obviously don't really know him. They don't understand his true origin, which is key to grasping who he is. The fact is that he lived in eternity past and had a relationship with God the Father. The fact is that he has come into the world in the Father's name and for the Father's glory and to fulfill his purposes. And you can see here that he says that his father, the one who sent him, is true. He's real. He's been with him. He knows him. He has a relationship with him. Notice here, too, the emphasis on Jesus being sent. This, this is said twice here. Jesus says in verse 28 at the end of the verse, he who sent me is true. And then at, again at the end of verse 29, for I come from him and he sent me. The point is, Jesus understands the reason that he's on the earth as the fulfillment of an intentional mission. The Father has sent him. He has come from the Father to earth for a specific purpose, for God's glory and God's purposes. Now, I'll talk more about that in a minute, but at this point, I just want you to understand that Jesus points here to his origin, where he comes from and how he has come into the world, the intentionality of his mission. And we'll talk more about that and connect it to his destination, where he's going. But first, look at the response in verses 30 and 31. So they were seeking to arrest him. 
But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So they're still wondering and questioning and and forming opinions on him. But once again, his hour has not yet come. You can see that language is the reason that he's not arrested here. And that points us to our next section in 32 and 36. He wasn't just supposed to come into the world from the Father for his mission, but there was a a reason for it ultimately. There was a destination that he was headed to. There was an hour for which he came into the world. He came into the world in order to depart out again. Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. You've seen back, I read this earlier in verse 13, that the authorities don't even want people talking about Jesus. They don't want any interest in him, and they, they're so committed to that that to, it's to the point where they're willing to kill him. And so now the people are totally talking about him, fully interested in him because he's teaching in the middle of this feast in the temple. So they send a delegation of the temple guards to arrest him. Jesus takes the possibility of arrest here, the possibility of him being taken in and possibly even executed to talk about his departure. Look at verses 33 and 34. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So we saw twice in 28 and 29 that he sent. He came into the world from the Father. And now you see in verse 33 that he is going to depart and return to the same one who sent him. This is not the only time in the Gospel of John that Jesus talks about his coming and his going. In the upper room discourse, which is later in, verses, or in chapters 13 to 17, the last night that Jesus has on earth with his disciples, he talks at length about this, departing out of the world. This is the reason why he came into the world. John 13, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, right here, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Later on in this discourse, Chapter 16, verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? Now the point here is that to grasp the significance of the offer of living water, which is the pinnacle point of this section, to understand the importance and the significance of Jesus' life and ministry, you have to know where he's come from and you have to know where He's going and why. You have to put together John 1 1 and John 1 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is his coming into the world at the beginning of the book being sent on a mission, the only true God. And then this is his departing out of the world. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work 
that you gave me to do. He came for a specific reason. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. His coming and his going make all the difference. Why? Why does it matter so much that you and I know that Jesus was in the beginning with God? Because as he comes into the world, he perfectly reveals the Father to us. We know God because Jesus has come. Why does it matter that we know that Jesus will depart to God? Because it's through this departure that he offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life to us. 1 John, same author, 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent the mission, the coming and the going, the departing. He sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction, the full and final payment for our sins. All of this is wrapped up in the very deep purposes of God. So as you view this, as you think about Jesus' coming and his going, now you're starting to know God better. You're starting to understand why he does what he does. And it's through all of this that you and I begin to understand. We start to sort of open the door and realize that God is a triune God. It's revealed to us in the Gospel of John here. We start to stare this full in the face. Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning, and he was God fully. He was not less than God, but was equal with God in eternity past. And his arrival and his sacrifice for us means that because he was God in eternity past and continued to be God, that means that when he comes to earth and dies on our behalf, that means that through him, through our union with him, through our connection to him by belief, by faith, that we are now brought into the presence of God. We're no longer rebels. We're now made his children as John chapter 1 says. And we are returned into a relationship with him, the same sort of relationship that the Son has with the Father. A relationship of love and of communion and of openness. That's what we now have. Because Jesus came and departed to the Father. Now he connects this, all of this himself in John 17. So I want you to turn over there and I want to read you several verses from this chapter that put all of this together for us. John 17, verses 20 to 26. And what's always so astounding to me about this, it's in this high priestly prayer of Jesus. John, the whole chapter is Jesus praying to the Father before he departs out of the world and back to the Father. It's Jesus having communion with his Father. What's so amazing here is that in verse 20, he prays for you and for me. And I have no doubt, because he is infinite God, that you were on his mind. You, me, sitting here by name, were on his mind as he prayed verse 20 for us. And look at what this prayer means for his purposes, for you and I, and how it connects to his coming and his going. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only. The disciples who were there with him, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That's who he's praying for. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. You see that? He came and he departed so that we could be in this relationship between the Father and the Son. Not made divine, but experiencing the love between a father and his son. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me before you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. How? We'll find out in a few minutes here in John 7 that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That's why he came. That's why he departs. And it's because of that relationship that Jesus has with the Father in eternity past and has continued to have. It's because of that relationship that he can offer living water And living water, partaking of the living water that he offers is the way in which you and I enter into this relationship. This is how it happens that you receive eternal life. And this is our second quality. It is delightful. It is good, good water. So you can go back to chapter 7 now. Look at the beginning of verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day. All right, now. Let's understand. I want you to fully understand what's happening here so that this, what Jesus says, has some real punch to it. The Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles we've talked about at length last week and a little more this week was the second major Jewish festival and it was significant. It was the most popular at this time. Lots of people went to Jerusalem for this. They went for seven full days. They participated in these rituals and celebrated this feast. And then at this time, there was an eighth day that had developed where they made sacrifices and they broke down the booths, the tents that they had lived in that commemorated Israel in the wilderness and God's provision. And so we don't know exactly which day this is talking about, the seventh or the eighth day, but I don't think it matters a whole lot. What matters is that you understand what happened in the festival every day leading up to what Jesus does here in his pronouncement. So the Feast of Booths was celebrating God's provision for Israel in the wilderness. And God's provision of Israel in the wilderness certainly included providing water from the rock for them when they were thirsty. But the Feast of Booths also anticipated and looked forward to God providing for his people salvation and his presence again in the future. So this is the last day of the feast. 
And here's what would have happened on every day leading up to this, every single morning of this feast. Each day, a golden flask, bowl, whatever it was, was filled with water from the pool of Siloam and was carried in a procession led by the high priest from the pool back to the temple. As the procession approached the water gate on the south side of the temple, there were three trumpet blasts from the shofar, which meant that this was a joyful occasion. The people were to be celebrating this ritual every day. As the procession of priests approaches the altar in the temple, the people began singing the halal, which is Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. You should go back and read some of those psalms. When they get to Psalm 118, every male who's there, pilgrim, joined in that psalm shouting, give thanks to the Lord. It's said three times during that psalm. Then as the procession made its way into the temple, the water was then poured out with the daily drink offering onto the altar before the Lord. So this has happened every day, this ceremony with water being brought into the temple and poured out as an offering before the Lord. And it's after days of watching this that Jesus stood up in the temple and cries out these words. Look at verses 37 and 38. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this is a bold and obvious pronouncement of who he is. He is clearly pointing to himself as the fulfillment of the hopes of the Feast of Booths. Just like he's the Passover lamb, the whole Passover experience that the Jews celebrated every year find its fulfillment in Jesus as the ultimate and final Passover lamb. Here he's saying, you celebrate God's provision in the wilderness, but I'm telling you, I am the living water. I bring it to you through my person and through my work. And I bring it to you from the Father. Now I want you to notice a couple things about his words here. First, this is a broad offer isn't it? If anyone thirsts. It's a broad offer made available to anyone, and it's initiated by Jesus. This is why he has come into the world, to offer this water. He was sent for this purpose. The water is available. How does one drink of it? Look at verse 38. Whoever believes in me. Out of his far, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The water's available. How does one drink of it? It's the same answer that we've seen throughout the Gospel of John. Believe in Christ. Believe in him. Coming and drinking is believing. Now, the second thing I want you to notice about this is that the water, when believed, when drunk, now becomes something inside the person springing up out of them. Look at verse 38 again. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I think this 
Jesus is saying this here because he's pointing to the way in which the new covenant brings about internal heart change. We are renovated from the inside out now. It's not simply that a law, that a list of commands is given that we have to obey from the outside in our own power and by our own efforts. Now the heart is changed and renewed and made new. Loves and desires, affections are changed. A new person is born out of and from a cold and lifeless spiritual corpse. That's what this water does. It is living water. How does this happen, though? How are we brought into a relationship with the Father and the Son? How do we experience that relationship? How is a heart made new? How does internal change happen? It's one of the glories of the new covenant. Look at verse 39. John explains it to us here. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You can see the language here that when Jesus is glorified, when he departs and goes back to the Father, then he will impart the gift of the Spirit to those who believe. So here's the difference, right? People sometimes ask about people in the Old Covenant being saved. How does that happen? What does it look like, right? Good questions. Here's one of the major differences. In the Old Covenant, the Spirit of God brought regeneration to those who believed, like Abraham, by faith, but they were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There was not the internal heart change that happened by the work of the Spirit. This is a dramatic shift in God's working. And this is a wonderful blessing for you and I, for those who believe in Jesus. Listen as Jesus promises this in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, that's hard. I'm very sinful. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is why over and over again in the Old Testament, Moses told the Israelites, you do not have a heart to obey. You can't do it. But now, by the gift of the Spirit and the change that he brings about, you and I can walk in obedience. Not perfect obedience, but we are progressively changed by the Spirit. It's amazing because in John 16, Jesus actually tells his disciples, it's better for you that I depart to be with the Father. Why? Because of the gift of the Spirit. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I'm sure that you have thought like I have before how awesome it would have been to physically walk with Jesus, to see the miracles, to listen to his teaching, and to be near him. And how much better that would have been than 
reading about him 2,000 years later. Jesus would say, you're not seeing this correctly, actually. That's what he told his disciples here. The Spirit is an unbelievably good gift from the Father and the Son to you and to me. And this is why I use the word delightful to describe the living water. Because there's an internal change that happens. As partakers of the new covenant, we get the joyful experience of having the Spirit of God apply the Word of God to our hearts to help us understand, and the Spirit works in us and produces actual and real, genuine change in us. Our character over time progressively changes to become actually more like Jesus. We put on these qualities, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is the gift, the delightful gift of partaking of the living water that Jesus offers. But for those who don't come in faith, who don't receive the Spirit, the offer of living water will always be hard to take, and it will always divide them. And this is one of the qualities of the living water. When it is not received by faith, it brings confusion and division. Look with me at verses 40 to 44. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet, the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, who would arise like Moses. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. This is clearly one of the amazing ironies of John's gospel. The people actually know where the Messiah will be born. They, they get that right. But they're confident they know where Jesus is from, but they don't really know where Jesus is from. They don't actually have that right. And so they're confused and divided here because they aren't accepting him by faith. Now keep in mind, during this whole thing, the temple guard are still there watching all of this unfold. And I think what happens here is there's such a division among the people and they're arguing and they're going back and forth and the temple guard are listening to all of this and we'll see later that they have a response to this of their own that they're just unwilling to arrest him. This is insane for us to step in here, try to divide these groups up and arrest this guy. We are not doing it. And so they go back, verses 45 and 46. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? They're not out there themselves. They want these guys to do it. I'm like, why didn't you bring him? Well, they don't arrest him because of what happens at the scene. But also look at verse 47. The Pharisee, or, or verse 46, sorry. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. I think they speak better than they know here. They're captivated by what he has to say and they're considering it. The religious leaders can't handle this. 47. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? 
But this crowd does not know the law, that does not know the law is accursed. Now they're going to mock the crowd as being backwards hillbillies who don't know anything about the law and they're under the curse of God because they don't know the law very well. And it's so ironic that they do this here because in steps a very familiar character. Look at verse 50 from earlier in John. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So Nicodemus comes in and applies the law to them and shows them that they're actually, they don't understand the law and they're not listening and obeying the law and giving Jesus a proper hearing and listening to what he has to say based on the evidence that's there. I think Nicodemus's point is a good one for us to consider here today. Listen, hear, judge with right judgment, as Jesus said earlier in this chapter. Hear him. Hear his claims. But in a preview of what's to come in this gospel, look at what the Pharisees respond in verse, to Nicodemus in verse 52. They replied, are you from Galilee too, you backwards hillbilly? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They mock Nicodemus, who is the teacher of Israel as well. So, let me bring all this together by asking you a few quick application questions. We've been through a lot of passage this morning. Four questions for you very quickly, and then we'll pray and continue on in our service. What, for you, are some stubborn barriers, like the Pharisees, right? They're committed. Even the crowds are, are in some ways, it seems like overly committed to not believing and not hearing Jesus based on who he is and what he has to say. What are some stubborn barriers that keep you from honestly listening to him and giving him a fair hearing? Second question. Do you thirst for God's word and for the truth about Jesus? When I say the word thirst, I'm not talking about just an intellectual, I know I'm supposed to read my Bible. I've been told that since I was a child, and so I do occasionally. That's not what I'm talking about. I know if you're here this morning, you probably think that you need to read your Bible at some level. Here's what I'm talking about. When you haven't had water all afternoon and you've been working out in the yard and it's 95 degrees, you are thirsty, you need water, and water is what's on your mind. Do you thirst? for God's word and for the truth about Jesus? Or do you have no real desire? That internal change that is wrought by the Spirit has never happened in your heart, and you know it's never happened because you really don't thirst for Jesus. You don't want what he has to offer. Along with that, another question. Does reading the Bible satisfy and quench your spiritual thirst? Or is it a dull, dry, and disconnected exercise that you occasionally do? And lastly, is the Spirit actively at work in your life producing the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, gentleness, patience, goodness, and all the rest. Consider those questions. Let's pray. 
Father, we're thankful for our time in your word. Apply these truths to our hearts. Help us to thirst and desire for the Lord Jesus and for the living water. And may the Spirit work and produce in us fruit that puts on display the change that has come through belief in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.